This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast. And PK, they're dropping like flies mm. in the federal government. First, we had the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds. She was in hospital with heart trouble uh, after she got embroiled in the uh, the Parliament House rape allegations. Then the Attorney General, Christian Porter, has taken stress leave after those historical rape allegations made against him, which he's denied. And now this week, the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, he's wound up in hospital, could be off for some days, maybe some of the sitting week next week. Nothing to do with sexual assault stories swelling around, we should say. But that's still three down for Scott Morrison's front bench. We wish them all well in their recoveries, PK, but I think the pressure's starting to show and next week Parliament's back, so the pressure is unlikely to ease, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and it's, in fact, next week we, we won't have the Leader of the House, who is uh, the Attorney General Christian Porter, doing that job. Now, that's a really key job that manages government business during um, sitting weeks. It's a big deal, actually. It looks like mm. Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, will, will be playing that role. But really, really difficult time for the government. We're going to be getting... And just, just to, sorry to cut in on your PK, but particularly big deal because, remember, Scott Morrison no longer has a majority on the floor of the House of Reps. That's when you need your manager of government business on the floor to be really in top form, don't you? Totally. And don't underestimate the role of that person in just making sure that all of the ducks are lined up. It's mm. a really difficult job. We're going to be talking more about what led us to this point with our guest, Julia Baird, talking about whether it can just blow over for the Attorney-General, particularly uh, the Prime Minister this week backing him in and saying um, he will come back to his job and that he's an innocent man, but can he really just come back to his job and will it all be hunky-dory? Already this week, uh, the ABC interviewed former Solicitor-General Justin Gleeson calling for the Prime Minister to seek legal advice from the Solicitor-General, the current Solicitor-General, to determine if an independent inquiry is needed to work work out whether Christian Porter is a fit and proper person to be in that top law job, the most important job, uh, you know, really for these issues in the country. Now, the Prime Minister is just completely, you know, just dismissing this. And in fact, I think even hardening his position against an inquiry, really backing himself into a corner, not even seeking advice from the Solicitor General. That's not an inquiry. That's just advice, but still not even going there. So it demonstrates that the government is really locking in behind Christian Porter and the other ministers. But how long can that really last? Yeah, I think that's right. You're right. That innocent man comment was a real declaration from the Prime Minister this week, wasn't it? Um, and Justin Gleeson, the former Solicitor General, I think was suggesting that the Prime Minister could go to the current Solicitor General, his second highest lawmaker, in the country. To head off, really, he might say, well, no, no further inquiry is needed if he takes a look at a few things. And that's how that suggestion was proffered. But Labor, however, is making some mischief here, I think, because it's saying the Prime Minister should seek advice from the Solicitor General. But when you push Labor to say, well, what if the Solicitor General says, well, there's no further inquiry needed, Labor says there's still push for an inquiry. So there's a, a bit of politics going on here as well. And I think we should say that the legal fraternity at the highest levels are a bit split on whether 
the government should or should not hold an independent inquiry. Most agree a coronial inquiry would be helpful and useful and should happen, but on this notion of a separate, you know, short uh, in-camera inquiry into the allegations, those historical rape allegations, there are se very senior uh, law minds on both sides of that debate. There are, but if you just look at what the consequences of these key ministers, and they're, they're in key portfolios, right? We're talking the Defence Minister, we're talking the Attorney General and Industrial Relations Minister, and also, you know, and it'll be brief, hopefully, but with, with Greg Hunt in the portfolio of health during a vaccination rollout nationally. They're really key areas. And, uh, you know, if you look at the implications of that, just one obvious one, industrial relations, right? That's the bill that was meant to be uh, passed through Parliament in the next sitting period. Well, I spoke to Rex Patrick, who's an independent senator, who says basically, no, nah, it won't happen. Michaelia Cash filling in can't do that job. So that's it appears at this stage off mm. the table. So it's having actually really significant consequences for government business too. And that's the, uh, I think, the image that the Prime Minister is trying to squash at the moment. It's trying to present itself as getting on with business. I I've sensed a real concerted effort here from the government to switch the focus from all these sexual assault allegations. I don't know about you, PK, but on RM Breakfast, we've had great luck this week getting different ministers on the program, which we welcome, of course, because it hasn't really been our experience lately. But suddenly, ministers are saying yes to come on talk policy. In some cases, they're even offering interviews. We love that. Um, and then we got a very major announcement um, from the government on the tourism and aviation sectors. They're the sectors, of course, hardest hit by the pandemic, or two of them anyway, tourism, a major employer. And a lot of jobs at stake, particularly when JobKeeper winds up on the 31st of March, a lot of trepidation about what would happen to tens of thousands of those tourism jobs when JobKeeper has gone. So the Prime Minister has come up with this plan. Uh, it's a $1.2 billion plan. It includes 800,000 half-price airfares for people to travel, to get people travelling internally to holiday beauty spots. But I've got to say, early reaction was mixed. I spoke with the Queensland Treasurer, Cameron Dick. You'd think he'd welcome this because a lot of those international sort of tourism beauty spots are in Queensland. But he said his state's not getting a fair share of the package. Well, like a lot of the things the federal government does, the Morrison government does, and it sounds good, but the facts are different. I mean, seriously, there are, there are some dead head scratches of this that seem bizarre. Why, why can't Queenslanders uh, be supported to travel to Queensland? Why can't they go to Cairns? Mm, why can't they go to Cairns? <laughs> so the thing about these tickets is you can get them half-price tickets, but you can only you can't use them within your own state. That was uh, a disappointment, as you can hear, for the state treasurer of Queensland. Oh. I also spoke with a representative of one of the major hotel groups in this country. Uh, he was disappointed too because he said, you know, most of the empty hotel beds are not in some of these holiday spots. Some of these spots are doing quite well. The Gold Coast, for instance, already doing quite well, but it's our CBDs where there's a a lack of visitors. But, you know, can't please everyone, I suppose, PK. What do you think? No. Well, I, do, I understand the critique about the not being able to go within your state because this is a huge country, right? If you're in Brisbane, Kansas is actually quite a, a long way. Yeah, it really is. So it's a critique that I think does make sense instinctively. Look, I think you just have to look at the reaction of someone like Alan Joyce, um, the Qantas CEO. He, he seems pretty happy guy. <laughs> yeah. I think that's always a good indication about, um, you know, how, how the industry sees it. Uh, look, it's, it's quite a bit of money. I think it will help 
there is quite a bit of politics in all of this too. It comes with the warning of, you know, don't close your state borders because mm. you can't do it anymore if you want to sort of restart the tourism economy domestically at least. Of course, I find, and I've said this on the podcast a gazillion times, the way that the border closures have been kind of incoherent and ad hoc and there's no national approach has been problematic. But there does seem to be quite a lot of politics in the announcement on that basis as well. Uh, A bit of a warning to states and territories to watch themselves on this. Uh, Look, I think it's a a solid package. Will it get people spending? Yeah, people with money will probably spend a bit. It's a bit of an incentive. Does it solve the whole problem? Well, while the international borders are closed, um, I think it's, you know, the the industry is still going to struggle. I don't think this is going to be a panacea and fix everything. That's for sure, Fran. Yeah, well, I think what really, what, until we get a vaccine rolled out, the industry is going to struggle because there'll be no international travel and people might still be, have a lot of trepidation. I think about booking holidays because people have been burnt a lot of times, some people. So I think confidence is going to be a bit shaky. This will help, but I think that's why the government's put an end date on this. You know, these these free tickets are only available until July, I think it is. So they want to get people travelling before the vaccine uh, is rolled out everywhere because hopefully by November, that's what the hope is, that certainly, you know, travel will be starting to get free and easy again. Imagine. Imagine that, Fran. Before we bring in our guest, I just want to have a a little conversation, if we can, on something that I think is really, really important and significant that's happened this week. On Tuesday, the Victorian State Government announced a new Truth and Justice Commission to investigate the ongoing effects of colonisation on Victoria's Aboriginal people. It's an Australian first inquiry. It's backed up by Royal Commission powers. It will take three years. It'll hold public hearings about social, economic and health disadvantages created by more than 200 years of colonisation. And it really feeds into the treaty process that's already been established by um, the Victorian government. Why I think it was worth mentioning, because people might listen and think, oh, you're a national podcast. You know, we don't really hear about state, state business too often. We do occasionally, but not too often. Is This is actually at the heart of the Uluru Statement, which called for a sort of truth process, truth-telling process at a national level, right? At, at a sort of an Australia-wide level, of course, colonisation has affected Indigenous Australians across the country in different ways, you know, in different, in different ways at different stages. Um, but clearly many people still living with the ongoing consequences and the intergenerational trauma that comes with it. I think this Victorian model should be applauded. I think it's a sort of Australia first model. It is significant and it provides a potential model for a national commission that does similar work. It's happened in Canada. It's happened in New Zealand. It happened in the post-apartheid period uh, in South Africa. Now, of course, that was a different scenario. It was very all very fresh. But there are many, many shocking stories that we will hear in this commission. Colonisation was so brutal and still is so brutal. Um, we're coming to you. I'm recording this on a Thursday morning. Uh, we've had our third death in custody just this week in our country. Wow. Uh, You know, there is nothing more stark than that. Mm. So we need to do something. And I I do think the Victorian government should be applauded in in taking some leadership here. Let's hope, because it hasn't been ruled out yet by the Morrison government. Let's hope they take this approach too. 
Well, because to me it makes no sense unless it's national. I mean, it's great that Victoria's first off the block on this and it's terrific the input already we're hearing from First Australians, one senior woman talking about, you know, this is not about blame, it's about healing and, and moving on. But it makes no sense unless it's national. I mean, the First Fleet didn't sail into Port Phillip Bay, they, they sailed into, you know, Botany Bay. It, so it's got to be a national response because that's where the colonisation process first began. It's got to start there. It, I think the sooner the federal government announces this is a model that it likes, it will pick up. As you say, that was the demand, part of the demand from the Uluru Statement, talk of a Makarata, a, a healing commission, a peacemaking commission. Um, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. And let's bring in our guest. <laughs> Julia Baird, journalist, writer and the host of the ABC's program The Drum. Welcome to the party room. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you here, Julia. Particularly in this week, it was International Women's Day on Monday, March the 8th, of course. But I wonder if you encountered what I did, which was that the vibe of International Women's Day was felt really different to me this year. There was not a lot of commemoration and celebration of, you know, of great women and great achievements. What I kept encountering was fury and frustration, given all the sexual assault allegations and some of the responses to them. Is that what you found? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I really think over the past couple of weeks, I mean, people, you know, Grace Tame saying we're on the precipice of a revolution, um, you know, Kate Jenkins saying that this is a real turning point. But what I've really noticed is a very deep weariness and uh, from women across all political parties and across generations and a kind of a, di a disconnect um, between what people kind of want to hear and are being told. So it gets to something like International Women's Day, which is so important in terms of connecting us to our history and just reminding us what women, you know, have fought for for so long that, that we, you know, we, we kind of get here and we're, and we're reminded that so often it's celebrated in ways that can seem, you know, trite and tokenistic mm. and patronising when we've got such profound problems with sexual assault, the criminal justice system, gender parity, you know, pay and, you know, let, let alone the problems that, that so many First Nations women are, are dealing with. So I think that Dave Sharma, when he was out handing out his little flowers, was probably surprised that, you know, a woman wouldn't want to get a flower and he doesn't love flowers, but I think that the reason that he was, you know, pilloried for that was just the the, the sharp contrast between what so many women are, are asking for and what they're getting right now. Yeah, it's about that notion. I mean, let's hope Grace Tame is right. Let's hope we are on the precipice of a revolution, but it just feels like we've been getting to that precipice and stuck there for a long, long time. And everything we're hearing in the past few weeks suggests that nothing has changed. Yeah, I think I think that's the problem. And I think that's why you're getting like the weariness. But it's also why a voice like Grace Thames is so startling. I mean, when you bring the experience of survivors of assault, of survivors of domestic violence, when they lead or control or are central to a discussion, it changes everything. And I think there's been so much that's been tone deaf about, you know, how how do we respond to, I don't know, allegations of rape? How mm. do we respond to learning that in just a, a click of a button, a Sydney woman now living in um, London can get thousands and thousands mm. of stories of, of rape in one small area, you know, of, of Sydney in the, although she expanded it nationally, it really that had happened in the last kind of couple or last few years. There's a sense that there's, that there's something that's just so, um, 
overwhelming there. Mm. And well, I think the response has been important in that you want it received with seriousness and that the consequences don't always land on the women for speaking up. Now, Julia, Elizabeth Broderick, who's the chair of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls and, of course, a former sex discrimination commissioner in Australia, spoke to me earlier this week about how Parliament has responded to the recent sexual assault allegations. She said culture and cultural change starts at the top. Here she is. It starts with the leadership. So words are cheap and easy, but what are the actions you take as leaders? So am I modelling dignity and respect in the interactions that I have with people all across the Parliament as a leader? Because so many organisations I go into, Patricia, there's a gulf between the workforce generally and the leadership. So the leadership's saying, well, we need to treat people with dignity and respect, but actually they're not modelling that behaviour. So has the Prime Minister miscalculated how much of an issue this is for, for so many women? It's something we know, Julia, as women, uh, it resonates mm-hmm. so deeply, right? This is not yeah. some, oh, you know, there is a rape allegation. I've never heard of such a thing. It's like everywhere. It is in our lives all the time. And this is part of the issue with his response, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I did wonder when I saw him, the way he was talking to Anne Connolly from the ABC, who's worked so hard and so long on the question of aged care. Um, It was very dismissive of her at a press conference. I thought that that might be something to reflect on. In uh, future weeks, when you think about women asserting a voice, I mean, he he did speak about, you know, Brittany Higgins in a way that didn't actually land correctly. I just really think the important thing would be to recognise instantly the gravity of what, what a rape allegation is and how it can destroy a life. When you look at those testimonies from those girls who said they were assaulted by private school boys in Sydney, You can see in their mental health problems, you can see suicide attempts, you can see PTSD. So you cannot too quickly shrug off or in any way diminish. Now, obviously, the Prime Minister is someone that that would care about this this matter and would abhor, you know, the act of Mm. rape or, or sexual assault. But it's extremely important to not just convey to women, but to say when something like this occurs, I will make sure that I myself am satisfied that I have read the statement and read the evidence or even spoken to some of these women's friends in the case of the woman who you know, made the allegation against the Attorney General. Um, in all I these think, little signals, right. it's a sense of taking it seriously because it matters and, and, and lives are lost over this. That's right, and and women know this, and I'm hearing this a lot from women, the the sense that they don't think that the Prime Minister and some others are paying good enough attention. You know, they didn't like it that he hadn't read the dossier. They haven't liked Mm. some of the -the off-the-cuff responses. So the the issue here is uh, women want to be not just heard, be seen to be heard, but see their um, political leaders paying attention. And that was, uh, I think, really writ large in this school Testimony, as you talked about that yeah. petition from the former schoolgirl Chanel Contos, the sheer mm. overwhelming is the word response to that, the immediate response to that, the dimension of the response to that, the 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 hardship and the trauma within those responses, absolutely heartbreaking. I spoke to the 
Federal Education Minister Alan Tudge, you know, he hasn't spoken yet or reached out to that young woman, Chanel Contos. I think he should. I think that would have been a smart thing to do, um, right. even though, you know, it's the states that run schools by and large. I, I spoke with Dr. Bryony Scott. So she's the yes. principal of Winona School. And I was really struck by one thing she said in particular, which was that, you know, we spoke a, a, a bit about what the schools were doing, how they could do it better. But this comment from her really struck, struck me. Do you know my whole thing around this is that I do not want these young people to A, even go through it and B, then have to wait 20 or 30 years before they get to that age that women get to where they go, actually, I don't care what the world thinks anymore. This was not my problem. That's 20 or 30 years where they sit with these stories that they don't feel they can tell anyone because they're so ashamed about them. I would do anything to change that. I would do anything to make sure it doesn't happen in the first place. And then if it does happen, that they are genuinely heard and believed. So what she's saying is she just doesn't want this moment to pass and, you know, move on to the next political whatever it is in, in a few weeks' time or a few months' time. And on that issue, she's made this call for an independent inquiry like those, you know, run by the Human Rights Commission in our universities and in the Defence Force Academy. Do you think that's a good idea? Absolutely. If we've got a situation where we, we've kind of got mass rapes that are occurring... And going uncounted and leading such a toll on women's lives. There's something that really struck me during this time. Now, we know that there was a considerable backlash to the Prime Minister saying, I spoke to, about Brittany Higgins, I spoke to my wife, Jenny, and she said, what if this happened to my to my daughters? And and a lot of rape survivors said, you shouldn't have to talk to your daughters. Grace Tame said the same thing. You don't have to have children to, to have a conscience. But the thing that struck me is... When Chanel Contos came out with all, all those stories, now hers is one of them, and in, in doing that, she had to then tell her father. And it made me think, do you know if that's happened to your daughter? I'm not speaking mm. here to the Prime Minister, but all, mm. all the blokes who've gone, wow, um, yeah, I'm not speaking about the Prime Minister at all, but I mean, there are a lot yeah. of fathers in this country who have no idea what their girls have gone through. And when I think about what are the, you know, everyone says, what, how should we talk to men? And, how, you know, there are a lot of people talking about respect and about consent. And I think the men need to talk to the women about what's happened in their lives and the impact that that's had on them. I mean, it's start, I can see it happening amongst my daughter's friends now. She's a young teenager. They're all about 14. It's starting to happen. They're being pushed up against a, a walls at parties. The you know, um, getting girls in a chokehold until they until they start to kiss them. It, it's all that's kind of threatening behaviour is is starting to build. And I think that there is a profound ignorance around the fact that we think that it's out there as a problem, and we don't realise that it, it's 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 often in our homes. It's often been experienced by people we are very close to, and. People have no ideas. And and when more people speak, I mean, Grace will have given a lot of people courage, Grace Tame. And I just really hope that she has the same impact as um, Rosie Batty did in um, trying to get us to think, uh, understand how prevalent these acts of, of violence are, which is why we need to take them so seriously. Okay, so let's go again, because we always, uh, at the moment of the last couple of weeks now, have cycled back to this question of what is a considered response is it uh, an independent inquiry? And views are split on that, even within senior senior legal circles. 
Is it a coronial inquest? Just leave it at that. If one is called, the Prime Minister can just leave it at that. Is it as simple as asking the Solicitor General to give a response on whether uh, he thinks an inquiry is necessary and if he says no, well, that's the end of it. In your view, what would represent a considered response and be enough for the Prime Minister to be able to say, I have looked, I have paid attention, I have focused and I've dealt with it? Mm. You, you just have to show that you've taken the claims seriously and I think that you need to have, an, I think the independent inquiry would be the best way to do that. I think we have precedent for that um, in terms of Dyson Hayden. People keep saying, oh, you're never going to get re resolution for this. People mm. are never going to want what they want. There's all this, there's, there's mobs, um, all the, the words that are being used for people who, who want to see this addressed and spoken about seriously are, are about some kind of group that's out of control and losing their minds and completely unreasonable. Whereas actually yeah, almost it's almost vigilante sort of ism, isn't it? Des right. Described as. Right, and it's a call. It's a call for the for the, for the opposite. Mm. It's a call for: Can we examine the evidence? Can you examine the evidence for us? Can you assure us that you've been through it and you remain confident in the Attorney General? It's one thing to say that your personal belief is, you know, about a presumption of innocence and you 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 stand by him. It's another thing to say this has weighed heavily upon me. I have read through this statement, or, or I, I'm appointing someone to go through the statement to speak to the friends. You can have a private inquiry. Most of those friends, and I've spoken to some of them, they don't want to have a, a media trial. They want to give their evidence pr you know, privately. It's important here, I think, Julia, the description of what an inquiry is, because I've noticed some, I think in government, certainly some in politics, talking about a wide-ranging inquiry. That, to me, has danger <laughs> signals all over it about being politicised. And really, what would be ideal is a behind-closed-doors with a very eminent person um, in yes. camera, short investigation, wouldn't it? I think a private inquiry, exactly. I mean, they want to be sure that the Prime Minister knew, that the Cabinet knows, and to have have him examine what they have to say. And I think that needs to be heard. And if you come back to the public and say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a grievous situation, we will never understand it. Yes, we have more in, insights into now, into this part of the story or whatever. The reason I have confidence is fill in the blank. Just talk to the Australian population, talk to the women of Australia as intelligent, kind of as sentient human beings who care deeply about this because we are watching, we've watched lives being ruined. That's right. And the other part, of course, of this is the message taking it seriously and providing um, a process provides to those many young girls right now who are raising these issues in schools across the country because they are. Young girls are watching and mm -hmm. if you are the most senior politician in the country, you cannot get this wrong. It is, it right. is a particular point, I think, in time where you cannot actually repeat the, the mistakes of the past. Right. And really kind of like strip it out of politics and understand that this isn't, I mean, when I had Alexander Downer on the drum and he's like, oh, the Prime Minister's going to get attacked for saying that, you know, he, he was speaking to Jenny about it, but it's just all politics. And when the, all the dust settles, I'm sure people will think it's a sensible thing to say. You have to keep saying, that, take it away from what you think is acceptable. As a, as a former MP, this has to be about what, what survivors want to hear. Mm. Otherwise, we will never break through and we will be stagnant. We'll be in the same old situation. 
of kind of belief, disbelief, or having these situations reduced to a he said, she said, which is not what we're dealing with culturally at all. We haven't heard the she said side of the story for millennia. That's right. right. This this is not a political issue. This is a critical issue for right. women. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic contribution. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure, guys. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Oh, question time is happening here too. The bells are ringing and it means it's time for our question time, the best question time in town. This week's question comes from Ben who writes, with so many government ministers now out on sick leave and the Morrison government only having a slim majority of one, what stops the crossbench from calling a motion of no confidence in the government while these ministers are absent and unable to vote? And Ben, Mm. good question. Good question because in theory nothing except I think all of them uh, or certainly most of them anyway, are on the record as saying they'll support confidence and supply. Um, so that's in the short term, unless there's something extraordinary which that occurs, and that can always occur. But I think it's it's it was pretty instructive that Scott Morrison is very alert to this uh, danger and this fragility um, too because um, he lost no time when Craig Kelly announced that he was going to quit the party and move to the crossbench. Scott Morrison went straight to Bob Catter, who's on the crossbench, and started talking to him about confidence and supply and, you know, listening very, very astutely to Bob Catter's concerns about more money for dams, for instance. So I think the government's awake to this. I all, I do think that the one, one major thing going for the government is the timing of this. We still are in a time of a pandemic. We are at the, the first stages of a national vaccine rollout. I don't think the Australian public would necessarily welcome our federal parliament um, to cutting, take, pulling the rug out from under the, the government at the moment during the midst of all this. And I think Labor's certainly alert to that and I'm pretty sure the crossbenchers would be too. Yeah, I think so. Look, you know, you, you mentioned it during the podcast earlier, Fran. It is... This is complicated for the government to have these senior ministers out of action like this. It does affect their their ability to kind of control the parliament, 100%. It just does. Uh, but I think they've, they're on solid ground in so much as these crossbenchers, particularly for the reasons that have been identified for why these people are away. I mean, Linda Reynolds, remember, is in the Senate, though. Yeah. But, um, you know, the reasons, mental health leave, they're pretty complex issues. And so uh, pulling any sort of political stunts when when those are the reasons identified, I think also complicates it because... I agree with yeah. that. And I think that's why we saw Labor. Labor's written to the government and and offered a pair for Christian Porter, which means that, you know, they won't use... that. They'll take a number out of theirs so that the government's majority or, or numbers in the House are not weakened any further simply by dint of the fact that Christian Porter is not in the House. And I think that's very much in recognition of, you know, what we were talking about before about the pandemic, but also the issue of mental health. How could how could our politicians be penalising someone or playing political games at a time when someone is off dealing with mental health issues? Yeah, that's right. It's it's Yeah, that's very complicated for them. All right, that's it for the party room this week. Thank you so much for your company. Keep sending your questions in. Don't forget, you can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to The Party Room at abc.net.au. Follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or any of your favourite podcast apps. We'll be back next week, of course. Until then, see you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.